Happy New Year! <laughs> you look so terrifying right now because I'm just going to paint a little word picture. Sales is wearing lipstick, unprecedented. <laughs> She's had her hair done, I think, recently because it looks very... It was Swish. done yesterday, yep. Right, and you're wearing a hot pink and bright orange T-shirt. <laughs> you actually are my vision of the person that's got their shit together in January and I'm just feeling a wave of hatred for you because I'm just wearing gardening shoes. Um, I've got a bit of regrowth happening in my hair. I'm feeling just a bit sort of sandy and January-ish. You're already back at work and I'm not yet. Well, do you know, I never ever would have bought a pink and orange shirt except for that genius designer, Daniel Learmont, who dressed me in pink and orange for the Logies right, last year. and now year. that's all you wear? Well, and I just never a in a million now. years would have thought that these colours and this bright colours would actually look good on they me. They do look good on you. But he proved that it did look nice on me. So thank you, Daniel Learmont. A new life for a ginger. If you want to just get a little burst of joy and you're on Instagram, follow Daniel Learmont Couture because he makes these gorgeous kind of classic frocks that are just sumptuous and like Chris Sell who does my makeup he's one of those people who I think loves women of all shapes sizes and ages and so you get that kind of everyone just looks like their absolute best self but they don't look like they've been kind of changed if you know what I mean I'm just loving that you've come back oh standard interruption hang on it's Jeremy just give me a second (laughs) hello darling you're live on the podcast (laughs) Sorry, sorry, everybody. What's She'll like, get this dealt with in, in a moment and I'll be able to tell you what I did over my summer Twin holidays. Twin pack of baby we... cos is exactly what I'm looking for. Yes. Of course she is. Of course oh, she is. Oh, as many as you can carry. <laughs> <laughs> like maybe five? I don't know. No, maybe, maybe four? Apologies, listeners, for this. Having a little yes, taste of my life. Exactly. Goodbye. Love you. Um, you quite done? Yes, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Look, it's the first podcast of the year. Someone was going to ring up uh, and that was Jeremy. He's at the shops. Uh, what kind of letters do I want? Baby cos is the answer. That's the lettuce of 2023. <laughs> I was just sniggering because I love that we've got back together and you are now an Instagram influencer. You're like, give this designer a follow. I mean, just the way he loves women is just like, oh, speaking of which, can we have a minute silence for Vivian Westwood. I, oh, yeah. I mean, talking oh. about designers who love the female form, I just, I felt just this dragging sadness about her death because what an extraordinary individual. Oh, amazing, amazing person and an amazing artist. And, yes, I agree with you. I salute her. Um, did, I, did I talk to you about that sort of biopic thing? Or, like, somebody made a documentary about her not even that many years ago, and one of the very obvious elements of the documentary was that she had clearly agreed to it and then repented of her preparedness to be interviewed. So the interviews of her sort of just going, oh, I'm so bored of all this stuff. She's talking about, you know, Malcolm McLaren and punk, and she's like, yawn. And I just thought, oh, she's obviously just a person who goes through life throws herself into stuff and then gets bored with it and then moves on. And I just, you know, I don't think I'm like that at all, really. I'm sort of a tragically consistent person in the things that I'm interested in. But I love that. I'm really drawn to that in other people, just this sort of all or nothing and then move on kind of thing. Do you know, I saw the flip side of that, which was I went to see Billy Joel live in Melbourne just at the end of last year. And Billy The Billy Joel content in this podcast, (laughs) I'm not going to lie, is higher than I ever imagined it would be. And so Billy Joel at a certain point goes to the crowd, I've got good news and bad news for you guys. The bad news is I haven't written any new material or brought out a new album since 1992. Everyone goes, what? 
<laughs> yeah, and he's like, and the good news is this means I'm playing all old material. Everyone's like, yeah. <laughs> so, and then he did it. It was just, that was such a great concert because he has so many hits and just right. such a massive back catalogue. And you'd think, you know, there's, there's actually a very funny piece in, um, oh, not what's that magazine called that does really funny that Murph loves sending us? Um, McSweeney's. Oh, yeah. McSweeney's did this fantastic thing about what goes through Billy Joel's mind when he walks into a Christmas party and there's a grand piano in the corner. (laughs) (laughs) And it's basically this internal monologue of Billy going, I know that someone's going to ask me to play that fucking stupid song. And he just keeps sort of going in this vein until the moment where he has to play it. It's just absolutely priceless. Can you imagine, though, going to a Billy Joel concert and he goes like, but first I've got to play you my new experimental atonal kind of instrumental mix. But even though, I mean, even though Billy must want to play Piano Man like a hole in the head, it still, I guess, has to be thrilling every time. I mean, look, I wonder if it ever wears off. I have asked musicians this and they say it doesn't. When you're playing something you wrote in front of 100,000 people and every person there is singing every note, like it's just gobsmacking. I think it would be worse if you were a one-hit wonder and you then sort of tried and tried and tried and never got another hit (laughs) and then you'd be like, don't ask me to play. Oh, God damn it! (laughs) Because it would be like narrowing your human significance to three minutes of audio but I think yeah. with Billy Joel so many hits that it wouldn't be did I he, he, no he still had he he's got a fair bit of stuff to choose from but the thing that was great I think for a fan of, of which I'm one um oh. is that there weren't very many songs that you would have wanted to hear that he didn't play like he really did play al- almost everything that you'd want to hear got, yeah. a, got a run which was just awesome so did I ever tell you about the time that Murph and Gwen and I went to see Banana Rama you did like, you dressed <laughs> up didn't you as a little I bit a little bit <laughs> yeah, that would have been great that would have been a real good well, nostalgia concert yes it was and we went with our friend Angela and yes we may have worn 80s party gowns and uh, went to the Edmore but like they really don't have a huge back catalogue at all. So they showed up and they were kind of like, you know, middle-aged mums just like <laughs> us. And um, and people were going nuts, of course, and there was a bit of stage banter and then they played like three or four songs and then everybody in the audience, you could tell, just went, oh, God, that's kind of it really. Well, after they done, yeah. you know, Robert De Niro's <laughs> Waiting and a handful of others, well, you'd done and dusted. That is what happened. So they... They only played for, I don't even think it was an hour. Like it was, wow. yeah, it was a really short show. And then they kind of went, thanks, Sydney, you've been great. And everybody in the audience <laughs> just like, sorry, what? Because it was what? like 80 buck tickets or something. And so when they stopped, there was like this angry mob of gay men and middle-aged <laughs> mums just like. But all, what do you want to hear? Play Robert De Niro's Way right, again. again. <laughs> We're all a bit sourced up, you know, right. on sort of Pinot Gris from across the road. And so we all just basically moved as a crowd to the Imperial and then savagely danced to pop music oh. like into the night. Well, they, they actually need to be on like a triple bill with, you know, Banana Armour, oh, Aha, yeah. uh-huh, oh, and yeah. Bros or something. That would be a great night bros out. Or bros or Bros. Oh, yeah. Oh, this again. <laughs> <laughs> this again. So, um, so um, <laughs> listeners, how we're splitting this pod is how we always do the first couple of the year, which is talking about our summer of culture. Yeah. So this episode one for the year is Salesy's Summer of Culture. That's because it's got more in it than Crab's Summer of Culture. So I've got something to tell you about that I went to on Wednesday night. Okay, so can I just build some background in here? A couple of days ago, what is it now, Friday, sales starts sending me these like <laughs> classically annoying sales messages, which is like... <laughs> I'm doing something on Wednesday night that's so ridiculous. It's so ridiculous. I won't tell you about it till the podcast. And I'm like, right, that sounds fascinating. But then she keeps texting me like, <laughs> and then on Wednesday, 
I totally forgot because it was annoying. And I said, oh, do you want to, like, because it was hot, you know, do you want to bring the kids around after after work? And she's like, no, I'm doing the thing. <laughs> so, okay, here you go. I'm a captive prisoner. So tell me your thing. So I was reading about what was happening in the Sydney Festival and I came across this thing called Lucid. And what it is, what, why it caught my eye, well, it caught my eye for two reasons. One is that it was taking place in a Harry Seidler designed building in Sydney that very few people get access to. It's run by the Commercial Travellers Association. It hasn't been renovated since the 1970s. Ooh. It's that mushroom building on Martin Place. Oh, okay, Do you know yeah, it near yeah. the MLC Centre? Yeah. For anyone who doesn't know it, it kind of looks like a, you know, space kind of thing. It's a very weird looking space building. mushroom. Like a mushroom, right? Yeah. Narrow, narrow yeah. thing and then a round kind of thing at the top. It's it's run by the Commercial Travellers Association, so salesmen and stuff would stay there um, and and so on. You can only get access to it if you're a member of that association. Mm-hmm. And so the Sydney Fringe had taken it over and they'd got this cellist to create this music oh, work. a cellist was involved. <laughs> I begin to understand. It was to create this music work that starts at 10.30pm and ends what? at 6.30am. <laughs> Sorry, and you and you go to the mushroom building and you go into a room and you stay there all night and they pump this thing in for the eight hours and it's called lucid and it's meant to kind of help you have some lucid dreams and influence your dreams and kind of, you know. Oh, my. What? And you did this? <laughs> I'm just going to take a picture of her big, stupid face right now. She's just like, she's so <laughs> pleased with herself. It's just like... <laughs> <laughs> so I I booked a ticket and then I, I I kind of didn't really think about it again. But in my head when I booked the ticket, I was thinking, wow, this will be beautiful. I'll be like cocooned in a room and played this comforting, nice music and it'll just be really enjoyable and, wow, that'll be that'll be lovely, a night in the city. And then I got the um, frequently asked questions two days before and it included – I'll read it, a, a bit of it to you. <laughs> How loud will the music be? Volume will be determined by the artist in line with the sonic journey. (laughs) Am I able to turn off the music? No. The work will run continuously for the eight-hour duration. (laughs) Am I able to turn off the lights? The lights will turn off automatically at 12.30am. My friends are doing this experience too. Can we spend time in each other's rooms? Within reason, yes, but all guests must have an allocated room. We ask you to respect other patrons and keep noise to a minimum. (laughs) So I saw this and then I'm like, oh, all right, this might be a rougher experience than what I'm anticipating. So what, what's in the kit? Right, keep talking. I have okay. so many questions. So so then I've decided <laughs> I've got my little backpack, so I've stopped off at a bar to get a martini at like 6.30 p.m., four hours before it actually starts because I'm just thinking. You might have gone out a bit early on the martini there, mate. <laughs> well, exactly, and I'm just thinking, well, this is kind of um, – I didn't invite any of my friends because I just thought probably quite rightly. Well, I would have absolutely made up an excuse. <laughs> I just thought this is one of these classic things that just no one's coming on this journey with me. I'm going by myself. So I've sent my friend Melissa in Brisbane. You might remember her yeah, of yeah. the missing handbag yes, situation. I and mm-hmm. I remember at the live show I said Melissa said, oh, no, and you were like, well, what else did Melissa say? <laughs> 
<laughs> so I've texted Melissa a little video of as I've left the bar and I've said, you know, I'm off to this show and explained it. Melissa's replied, show? That's not a show. You are a rat in a laboratory, my friend. That is 100% correct. She's gone, have you ever watched the show called The 100? Someone will probably have white noise in a lullaby, but I'm sad to say you will be listening to Chaos and Cacophony. She's gone, do you have to uh, do it on your own? And I've said, well, you can book a double room, but I'm, I none of my friends would want to go to this. Um, anyway, I said, the only way it could get worse at this stage is if I get there and I discover that I'm paired with a random stranger in a twin share. And I said, imagine that, I said, that would be quite the surprise twist, especially for the person who finds themselves assigned Lee Sales. <laughs> and Melissa's like, imagine their surprise at being paired with Lee Sales, but then you're shocked and surprised when you're paired with Sid the Slasher. Get ready for your next dating disaster. <laughs> so anyway, so it provided much hilarity. So I've got there. So what time did you turn up? I mean, what did you do between you can, martini at 6.30 and showing up at 10.30? Like? Went and had another drink at another bar. <laughs> wow. Okay. So you've turned up sourced. So um, I've what were you wearing? Just whatever I had on at work that day. I can't remember because I went straight from work. So, so okay. <laughs> so you're wearing work gear. Did you take a toothbrush? Yeah. I had a backpack. I had oh, like my okay, overnight bag. Okay, okay. So did I you take get, a nightie? Well. Oh, God. Oh, God. Oh, God. <laughs> so I get there. Right. So I get there and then I realise immediately. So there's another couple checking in when I'm checking in <laughs> and they, of course, recognise me. And then I realise, oh, this is probably a drugs and sex thing. If you if you were there like with a partner God, taking some drugs, total it's swing up, fine. Right? So anyway, so we've all gone up in the lift. They've recognised me. They've asked what I'm doing here. Am I doing a story on it or whatever? I'm like, oh, just My look. face is just like creased <laughs> with concern right now. Like I just look worried if anyone's wondering. So I go up in the lift. I go. The building actually was one of the highlights of doing it. It is a very unusual building. So you get out of the lift and the lift obviously goes up like the centre of the mushroom. Right. You come out into a circular corridor, which clearly the building has not been touched since it was made. And it's kind of a bit of a creepy like Twin Peaks vibe in the kind of central round corridor and every every <laughs> build, every build room's marked up the same number. Uh-huh. Same, sorry, the same way. And so my room is 407, which I texted a photo of to Melissa and she's like, mm, 407, wow. I'm lucky for some. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so I opened it. The best way that I can explain it to you is imagine a film in which George Clooney is playing a kind of depressed salesman who travels from town to town and he's got right. his little briefcase it's set in the 1970s yeah. and he opens the door of his room can you imagine that in your head what right. it looks like That's so there's what it a bed like. in there there's a sing- it's very spartan it's monkish almost like single yeah. bed bedside table with a bible in it all kind of a brown wood closet um, bathroom that hasn't been renovated with kind of cream tiles like just so do people stay in here normally like it's so it's owned by the some automobile bit it's it's owned by the commercial travelers oh, right. association Oh yeah, my God. So, so it literally is a salesman. It literally hotel. is. So if you were a salesman who was on the road in Sydney in the 1970s and you had to come into the city, you would stay. Do you think it's hilarious that you are literally a saleswoman <laughs> and that you are staying in this hotel? Did you reflect that had not on that? Dawned on me until you mentioned it. Okay. So then I Sleep sales from the sales department. <laughs> so then I kind of there was this thing that looked like cousin it sitting on the dressing table. It was like covered in pink tassels. It was the shape of cousin it. What? From the Adams family and covered in tassels and that was the speaker that was going to pump the music in. And so then I unpacked my bag, realized I hadn't brought any pajamas, forgot to bring PJs. So then I thought, all right, so now if there are any surprise twists in the experience, You're nude I'm going to be nude for it. Yeah. Anyway, so then I started, so of course I was so just did you nude, nude up immediately or? Um, I I kind of, you, you know. You have to describe your work attire. I assume it wasn't, you know, kind of regional I, I, Italian airline or any of your, you know. It, no, no, it wasn't posh work, work attire. It was like, you know, shirt, short, shirt. 
How's that going? It was a shirt and pants, shorts. Uh, No, not shorts. Trousers, you know. So I can't remember if I then nooted up immediately, but I got into bed pretty quick and then I started watching something on the iPad, fell asleep before the music even started. What? You literally checked out by nine as per your usual routine and missed the whole thing. Well, I'd had, a ma- thing? I'd had a martini and a ginger beer by then, so I was ready to, ready to crash. So then I I got up, I sort of woke up, didn't didn't look at the time, went to the toilet. While I was in the toilet, it started. So right. I, it was kind of a bit of an anticlimactic start, right, because yeah. I'm, you know, in the bathroom. So I've come out. Just, just for clarity, nude in the bathroom <laughs> or did you? Nude in the bathroom. Then I had an issue where I could not find the flusher for the toilet. Right. It was up like ceiling height. Really? Isn't that a thing from that era? The flusher was ceiling height. Was it, it took a chain a, or a button? No, it was a push like wow. pad kind of no, thing. that's unusual. Yeah, I was in quite the panic thinking, oh, no, <laughs> what's going to happen No, here? I've dropped a log in this uh, <laughs> sales hotel bathroom and everyone would be like, wow, these sales doesn't flush. Interesting. <laughs> So then I got into bed and I realised, oh, okay, oh, this is the next twist. It's not cello music at all. It's just like what, what I'd call a soundscape. It's like oh, synthesised soundscape God. kind of music. So you've gone to bed with Philip Glass, essentially. Yeah, but not as – it was definitely a higher quality than what you'd hear when you were having, like, say, a massage or something. It wasn't, right. like, it wasn't like – it wasn't Enya. Money well spent then. <laughs> <laughs> massage music without the massage. Lovely. It wasn't Enya. And then oh. I've no, I never go to sleep with music. The, the most I would use is white noise. Like sometimes I'd put on train tracks or something. Like right. Doo-dum, doo-dum, yeah. doo-dum. And so, so I, fe- I kind of listened to it for a bit and then I fell asleep and then I was kind of drifting in and out of sleep. I reckon I woke up maybe seven or eight times. But actually – I was surprised at how well it did put you back to sleep because normally when I wake up in the night, I just run through my worry list and then I'm awake for an hour mm-hmm. and a half. But when there was something playing and it was kind of a bit Ibiza-ish in that there was loops and patterns and stuff. <laughs> Stand by for some <laughs> real analysis then. It's the I word has been dropped. Whoa. Think was, about what you're doing here, pal. So you could concentrate on the just like repetitive, boring kind of pattern and then you'd drift back off. And so when I kept waking up, I was thinking, okay, because it's called lucid, like is this going to, is it going to come into my dreams? Is it going to like impact things? And the only sign I have that it maybe did have some level of influence was the very last thing that I dreamt before I woke up. I dreamt that I was hanging out with Richard Tonietti from the Australian Chamber Orchestra and we were baking jam rolls. (laughs) And then I woke up, when I woke up properly and it was like light, I looked at my phone and the time was 6.31am and the music had finished at 6.30am. Now, I don't recall hearing it end, but clearly something must happen that your brain goes, you know, that noise is finished, so now you're awake kind of thing. Um, And so then I went for a big, beautiful walk around the harbour. So it was actually kind of quite an interesting yet nerve-wracking initially experience that actually did not, you know, push the buttons that I was worried about but so it was fun I didn't tell you about it beforehand because I knew that you would think it was completely insane Mm -hmm. yes (laughs) as has pretty much every friend I've mentioned it to but it reminds (laughs) me of a book that I read over summer which I absolutely it leads me into this which I absolutely loved which we were gifted at our Canberra show our last episode of the year called this is not a book about Benedict Cumberbatch by Tabitha Carvin did have you read it by any chance I have oh great I've read it as well so like just set the scene okay so it's a book about embracing if you like no 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 mate like take a crab run up to this anecdote like where did we get the book we got it on stage because Brian Schmidt who continues just to be hilarious 
Victoria's worked out all this stuff to contribute to our Christmas show <laughs> at his university. And that involved him borrowing a Breville pizza machine <laughs> and making us a pizza live on stage with guidance from Stephanie Alexander. Honestly, he's hilarious. Set fire to the pizza machine, extinguished it, all fine. And then he said... And we had accidentally mentioned Benedict Cumberbatch while on stage, as we sometimes do. And he had rigged up this woman, Tabitha Carvan, who's an ANU person, who has written a book called This Is Not A Book About Benedict Cumberbatch. And he's like, come up, Tabitha. And she had a copy of her book for both of us. And then you, of course, start relentlessly interviewing her on stage. And her initial response is, <laughs> Brian said I wouldn't have to say anything. Like, sorry, Tabitha. <laughs> Brian lied. <laughs> so we got given her book, which I had been meaning to read, actually, because I'd heard about it, thought it started intriguing and finally got around to it um, when she gave it to me. So the book basically is about if you are crazy interested in something or you've got an interest that seems kind of weird to other people, who cares? If you really like it and it makes you happy, just embrace it and so in her case mine it's just crazy stuff like I did on Wednesday night in her case it was the actor Benedict Cumberbatch and she was in a period in her life where she had a couple of small kids at home she'd kind of um, had a job that was you know enjoyable but not kind of her chief passion and she just started watching I think Sherlock was the entry Mm -hmm. drug into you know Cumberbatch mania and she just became utterly obsessed by Benedict Cumberbatch and was initially it's kind of I guess a memoir of her obsession with him and she's she tries to hide it initially because it's embarrassing but then she does this it's Firstly, the voice. It's funny. It's really funny. Mm. And the voice, she is so likeable and funny and intelligent. And then she very beautifully and seamlessly kind of weaves her own experiences of her fandom of Benedict Cumberbatch into an exploration of some of the, I guess, psychology around and, and I guess kind of an academic exploration of the nature of obsession, the nature of shame, the nature of embarrassment, fan groups, and she interviews some other people around the world who are absolutely obsessive, Benedict Cumberbitch, Cumberbatch, or Cumberbitches as they're known. Yeah, they're called the Cumberbitches, which, yeah. Anyway, I thought which it was... Which he thinks is problematic, apparently. There was some grab from an interview where he's just like, oh, my God, <laughs> call yourselves that. It was a really very uplifting and charming read, and I could not have liked it more. Yeah, I loved it too. I raced through it and I just sort of picked it up because it was in my bag and um, and also you had already read it by that stage. Like it, you read it in the 36 hours. Yeah, I just read show. it straight after, yeah. But I really like, I mean, it's actually really intelligently structured because you sort of, I mean, I guess if you're a working parent, you kind of identify with her and that sort of weird thing that happens when you have kids and it's sort of like your world shrinks and expands all at once yeah. in different places and leaving some bits baggy and some bits sort of overstretched. And she articulates that really well, but what she sort of folds into it is this really considered analysis of like what the world finds acceptable in terms of hobbies and interests, right? Oh, so good. So, you know, she talks, she explores her sort of shame about, you know, falling for something that's predictable or, you know, being just part of this amorphous mass of, you know, hysterical women who are obsessed with Cumberbatch. And she kind of relates it back to her experience of teen fandom as well. Yeah. And what is really interesting is she looks at the sort of gendered nature of this stuff and how, you know, as soon as 
something is widely fancied by young women, it becomes sort of somehow less um, That was fascinating. Mm. That was a really interesting um, part of the book. And also she explores the question of, she said one of the most common reactions was, well, what does your husband think about mm. it? As mm. in, is it threatening to your kind mm. of relationship? Look, it was. I, I found it so interesting because it made me think about obviously learning the cello and thinking, all right, well, what's <laughs> the difference? Everything reminds you of learning the cello. <laughs> oh, my God. I was thinking, what's the difference? One day I'm going to do a Rorschach test with you where I just do these hand-drawn <laughs> sketches and I'll be like, what does that remind you of? She'll be like, me, me playing the cello, <laughs> me acing the cello at a major concert venue, <laughs> me being congratulated by Yehudi Menuhin. Me doing a duet with Yo-Yo Ma where he plays the secondary part on his cello. <laughs> um, Sometimes I think you are so psychologically straightforward, like you're like an amoeba. <laughs> Um, so, <laughs> or a golden retriever. So, learning an instrument—that's that's a socially acceptable hobby, right? It is. Except spending an hour a day it, yeah. googling Benedict Cumberbatch is yeah. not. And she yeah. she makes this point that there's certain things that we think, well, that's okay if you watch an, a soccer game for an hour, no worries. Yeah. If I sit on my computer, even though it gives me, she was talking about what gives you a feeling of well-being. Yeah, it was. It's look. It's what a, makes you happy, right? What makes you happy? It's a bloody great book. But there's an interesting thing too, isn't there? Around I was thinking about this the other day when I was thinking about. Oh, it wasn't the other day. It was a long time ago. My children always mock me for saying the other day for something that was months and months ago. But there is something about the, like, predictability of gender interests as well. Like, you know how chick lit fiction sort of quickly mm. became a bit of a pejorative term, which is bizarre, whereas, you know, when you see Father's Day advertised, it's all, you know, like predictable presents that dads will like. Like mm. there is a huge gendered set of expectations about what members of each gender will probably like but there's nothing there's no sort of disgrace in being into fishing or into football but there's a bit of a slight kind of like oh your little mums with your little but our our podcast gets that kind of attitude sometimes but our podcast is legitimately embarrassing i mean like it is embarrassing (laughs) to like this podcast but you know like i won't name the person but i was interviewed last year by a fairly high profile man who was trying to understand why our podcast popular and in the interview he said to me well i guess it's because it's something women relate to because it's about how women kind of balance their lives and I, I was like no it's not about that at all it's about <laughs> books culture cooking friendship is obviously and a part bit about of it cello, obviously but a bit about cello <laughs> but but it was interesting that because it was done by two women it was like it was a women's thing a niche thing actually yeah. whereas I think and you know I, we do have you know some male listeners and people g'day come Fred, up g'day Steve <laughs> g'day Harry is it your I think that's, or your that's all of you isn't it <laughs> And I think that, well, why, why would this content not appeal to men? Why, why would men not be interested in hearing about Lucid or Tabitha Carvin's book? Like, you know. So anyway, it's it's a great book. I recommend it. I read another book, actually, which was a little bit about obsession and being obsessed with something, which was a book called Desire by Jessie Cole. Have you oh, read or heard of this? I feel like I've heard of it. Oh, it was very, very interesting. She's a writer who's based in the Northern Rivers region of right. New South Wales. And it's a, it's a memoir of sorts, and it's about her relationship with a man who's unnamed, who lives in Melbourne, who is about 22, 20, you know, 20-ish years older than her. And right. he is quite happy to have a kind of casual thing and not really a, um, you know, committed relationship. I bet he is. And she (laughs) is kind of unscratchably obsessed by him and thinks about him all the time. And so she kind of dissects the nature of her obsession and what she wants from him and his inability to kind of give it. And then it's 
really, really layered. Um, it was, I found it hard to put down. It was What's very his name? She never names oh, right. the actual Sorry, you just said man. That. <laughs> yeah, so he remains unnamed through it. And then it interweaves. But this is a real story. It's not a novel. It's a yeah, it's a memoir. Okay. Yeah. And then you she also said that <laughs> uh, my comprehension has taken a real beating. <laughs> I don't, I'm not a very good learner orally. Perhaps you know it's what, time for me to mention this. Do you know what I think the thing is? <laughs> I think it's because what happens is sometimes this happens to me too. I think sometimes someone gives the detail of something, mm. and you don't, you're not that interested. But then they say something that piques your interest. Yeah, and you're like, and oh, you realise, hang on, hang on thing? Yeah. yeah. So I think that's what's yeah. just happened there. No, I was actually trying to re- work out if I'd already read this book. That's why I was asking. I the think questions. you'd remember it if you'd read it. Yeah, because right. Because no, I've read a novel that answers to this description a little bit. But it's it's a novel, so yeah. Proceed, and then so it interweaves the kind of story of the relationship with some of her backstory and some of her life because she's right. in um, Northern Rivers when those terrible floods happen. Oh, okay, right. And so it it kind of pulls all that together. Yeah, she's a great writer. It was a really unique take on something. It reminded me a little bit of that Alan de Botton book about love where he oh, charts okay. that love affair from start to finish yeah, in great, the great detail. Is that, is no, that I can't right. remember what it's called, oh, okay. but it might be called On Love or something. I can't yeah. remember. But anyway, it's it's that kind of where someone does a deep dive on something really mm. intimate and personal and it's very vulnerable and honest and open and so, you know, it's very compelling for that reason. So I, I really loved that. The other things I knocked over on holidays, some of which I said – at our last show that I was going to read, so I'll give people a quick update on them. Lucy by the Sea by Elizabeth Strout. Oh, who, okay. One right. of my favourite people. Strout. So Lucy Barton is a character who's appeared in previous novels. Yep. And, oh, God, one of the things I just absolutely love about Elizabeth Strout is the way she'll weave in a character who is a central character in another book. Like Olive Kittredge is referred to in this book just in passing. Mm-hmm. And it's like so someone's um, – it's a woman who works as an aged care worker in Olive Kittredge's home and she just mentions in passing, yeah. I look after this woman called Olive and you're like, oh, my God, that's <laughs> Olive Kittredge. Um, I just – I love how she does that. But Lucy by the Sea is actually the first novel I've read which – is set in COVID times and makes a big deal of COVID. Oh, okay. Most other culture is just spinning Isn't it interesting it? the way it kind of like either gives a nod towards it or just pretends it didn't happen? Exactly. It's such a creative challenge. Yeah, absolutely. And people, I think, have made the judgment that no one wants to be back immersed in that. And yeah. I've got to tell you, having read this, I think that is the right judgment. Yeah. Because um, I love Elizabeth Strout and I was just like, I'm sick of the COVID. I just don't need to know That's what it was like not seeing your family. And I don't really care that you it was, you know, you were feeling anxious because you were stuck at home. Like we all know that, you know, wow. so it didn't, even though I'm a massive fan of her and it was well written and I like Lucy Barton, all of it. And it certainly did have things that held my interest. I read the whole book, of course, but I, I just felt like, yeah, just, I'm not interested really in reading any, like, any stuff like that. Isn't it interesting? Like, so if, if there's a universal experience that everybody's had, then you don't want to consume kind of creative material about it. Like, is that what happens with, like, I'm just trying to think of, you know, post war literature or, you know, I mean, like, post World I mean, War One, like, people went berserk, didn't they? Like, the 20s was this sort of creative explosion that seemed to be moving away from you know yeah um maybe maybe not enough times elapsed i mean it's a universal experience and then every the, the particularities of everyone's mm. personal experience is unique of course yeah. but then there's just a kind of theme that's repeated you know sort of for everyone so you know good piece of writing didn't overly you know hold my interest hello olive i read the diana chronicles by oh. tina brown Loved it. Yeah. She's, okay. one, she's a great that, writer. I read because you seem to really get into it. Although I'm feeling a bit really close to the brim with royal material. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to ask you, because I, I did 
watch some of that Harry and Meghan thing, but I didn't get to the end. I sort of thought, how yeah. many other ways can they say this? We talked and then about it at the camera show. We did. Um, but what I want to know is, I think you've watched that Anderson Cooper interview with Harry. It's oh, Harry, right? God. Which yeah. I haven't. I read. Yeah. I was. I did. I joined the rest of the universe in going like. Sorry, what the necklace and the dog bowl and the sort of what? Yeah. Look, um, I did watch that Anderson Cooper interview, and I felt like it left me with an icky feeling because I think we are watching somebody who has a horrific trauma from their childhood have basically a meltdown on the basis of some bad decisions in public and so I just felt and I and I just think the so you felt exposed for him like you yeah felt like I just shouldn't be watching felt this. like you know who would green who 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 cared about this person would green like this I think it just is so it's Brad Pitt in the desert for GQ exactly it's <laughs> as Marina Hyde said what therapist greenlit Brad Pitt's decision to hawk Ralph Lauren in a dank cave <laughs> That's the same person Harry's seeing in LA, oh. <laughs> I think, because it, it's just it's um, not it's not helpful. And some of the thinking is kind of just illogical. Like I've been honest, I've told every last scrap of dirt, I've put it all out there. So now nothing more can be link- leaked, and now we can all reconcile and have peace. Yeah, no, mate. Do you think it's because I mean one of the weird things about the monarchy is that there's this sort of weird irrelevance of the flesh right like so the monarch is the monarch and that extends to their whole person right that's their whole significance and then their descendants are ranked in significance because Mm. of their birth order or the occasion of or circumstances of their birth nothing to do with their actual self-worth so if you grew up like that i mean particularly in in a contemporary environment you would have this bizarre dislocation of the significance of your own individual experiences so maybe that is what creates this urge to rebel by just releasing every single thought bubble you've ever had maybe but you know in any context whether you you know a spare or not to release private text messages you know it's just never a good in my view thing to do the other thing too is it's well, interesting. That makes me feel very relieved about our future friendship. <laughs> <laughs> so the ghostwriter is a guy called J.D. Moringa who yeah. also ghostwrote Andre Agassi's book, which I loved, oh, Open. Another great title as well because like Spare great. is actually a fabulous Excellent title. title. Yeah. And Open, I think, is one of the most inspired sporting memoir titles yeah. I've ever read. And I think, you know, the beauty of Andre Agassi's book was it felt authentically like Andre Agassi's voice. And that's what a good ghostwriter does. It's not their voice. It's the voice of the person. Whoever yeah. did Keith Richards also did a brilliant job of capturing, like, you know, what probably Keith just is. got They got Keith for his good 15 minutes a day. <laughs> so now this is, I think, one of the problems with this book, um, and my friend Mia Friedman sent this to me, is that... Spare, that is. Yeah, yeah spare, is that... The ghostwriter has not captured Harry's voice. Like, let me read you a bit of it, Mm. talking about Diana. You know, blah, 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 one of the most famous women on the planet, one of the most beloved. My mother was simply indescribable. That was the plain truth. And yet, how could someone so far beyond everyday language remain so real, so palpably present, so exquisitely vivid in my mind? How was it possible that I could see her clear as the swan skimming towards me on that indigo lake? Uh How could I hear her laughter loud as the songbirds in the bare trees? Still, there was so much I didn't remember because I was so young when she died, but the greater miracle was all that I did. 
Her devastating smile, her vulnerable eyes, her childlike love of movies and music and clothes and sweets, and us. Oh, how she loved my brother and me. Obsessively, she once confessed to an interviewer. Well, mummy, vice versa. Maybe she was omnipresent for the very same reason that she was indescribable, because she was light, pure and radiant light. And how can you really describe light? Even Einstein struggled with that one. Recently, astronomers rearranged their biggest telescopes, aimed them at one tiny crevice in the cosmos and managed to capture a glimpse of one breathtaking sphere, which they named Erendel, the old English word for morning star. Billions of miles off and probably long vanished, Erendel is closer to the Big Bang, the moment of creation, than our own Milky Way, and yet it's somehow still visible to mortal eyes because it's just so awesomely bright and dazzling. That was my mother. Now, come on, that's not Prince Harry's voice. Right. So It's not a lot of dog bowl level detail there, right? Well, he just doesn't talk like yeah, that. Yeah. I mean, you know, I watched that 30-minute yeah. yeah, interview yeah. with Anderson Cooper. He doesn't talk like that. Yeah. So that is, you know, kind of tricky. But anyway, look, it's I just – the whole thing Do you is, think you'll uh, read that book? No. I don't think so. I mean – Again, and this is something that publicists always think about when they're publicising books is how much do you put out in the publicity well, because like, it makes people feel like that. I feel like I've absorbed more than a book's worth of... They have of, carpet-bombed the publicity, yeah. so I'm not really sure now what the um I do love the story the about the Spanish version accidentally going on sale, though. That's like oh, a spectacular incredible. car crash. Um, so let me just quickly rip through a few other things. Yep. I read an, um, a thriller over summer actually written by one of our colleagues called The Enemy Within by Tim Ayler. Oh, right. Excellent. Now, I know that sounds nepotistic. Tim's written multiple other books. I've never talked about one of them on the podcast He's before. a massively successful writer as well. Did he? It was actually for a summer read and, and a thriller, which is the genre he writes yep. in, and as you know, I like that genre, it was a bloody good read. And so it's basically about a journalist who is kind of scarred from being a foreign correspondent and he stumbles across this big yarn and kind of, you know, exposes it. Bit messed up inside. Bit messed up inside. And then he it kind of very cleverly uses contemporary events to craft quite a plausible scenario. And, yeah, it just kept me ripping through the pages at the beach over summer, so uh, I thought Tim did a great job of that, of um, The Enemy Within. And then uh, the other main thing, oh, I've, there was one other thing I just wanted to read you aloud, which was I'm reading a book called Burning Questions, which is a collection of essays by Margaret Atwood. It's not oh, you. Right, but, okay. And it just reminded me, when someone's a good writer, how effortless it looks. Because mm. the writing in this, it just carries you along so beautifully, but she is so smart. The essay that, I mean, I've loved all of them, but the one that I really enjoyed was one looking at I think it was the 100th anniversary of Anne of Green Gables and because Margaret Atwood's Canadian, she wrote about it. And so she was talking about – so Anne's massively popular in Japan. Anne of Green Gables is – Really? So if you go to Prince Edward Island, it is full of Japanese tourists. Anne of Green Gables is massive in Japan. Whoa, okay. And it's kind of interesting. Because of the book or the series or the film or – It's because of the book. People have been obsessed by the book in Japan. And so Anne has a bit of a – Margaret Atwood's on a book tour in Japan and so she says she goes to Japan, she asks a Japanese audience to explain to her why are they fascinated with Anne of Green Gables and there were 32 answers came out of the audience and a woman who was there with Margaret wrote them down and typed them out and sent them to her. And so this is what the Japanese audience said why they like Anne of Green Gables. Anne of Green Gables was first translated by a Japanese author who was very well-known and well-loved already. Anne was an orphan, and there were a lot of orphans in Japan right after the Second World War, so many readers identified with her. Isn't this already so fascinating? Right, yeah. 
Anne had a passion for apple blossoms and cherry blossoms, and the latter are especially dear to the hearts of the Japanese, so her brand of aesthetic sensibility was very sympathetic. Anne had red hair, which before the past 20 years or so, when even middle-aged Japanese ladies may sometimes be spotted with blue, green, red or orange hair, was thought to be extremely exotic. Anne is not only an orphan, but a poor girl often, the lowest of the low on the traditional Japanese social ladder, and yet she wins over that most formidable of Japanese dragons, the bossy older matron. Mm. In fact, she wins over two of them because she gets Mrs. Rachel Lind as mm. well. Anne has no fear of hard work. She's forgetful because she's dreamy, but she's not a shirker. She displays a proper attitude when she puts others before herself, and even more praiseworthy is the fact that those others are elders. She has an appreciation of poetry, and although she shows signs of materialism, her longing for puffed sleeves is legendary, <laughs> in her deepest essence, essence, she's spiritual. And high on the list, Anne breaks the Japanese taboo that forbade outbursts of temper on the part of young people. She acts out spectacularly, stamping her feet, and hurling insults back at those who insult her and even resorting to physical violence, most notably with the -the over-the-head slate episode. This must have afforded much vicarious pleasure to young Japanese readers. (laughs) Isn't that fascinating? It just explains so much about it. So loving that. The other thing is... Uh, She's reached the ticking things off her list. I am. Well, I'm just conscious we're going really long and I've actually been reading some data about how much audience... Yeah, audiences don't like things that go long. Um, Fleischman is in trouble. The oh, television yeah. adaptation, yes, excellent. Yeah, loved it. Yeah, yeah. so good. Um, one of the things I thought was brilliant was the casting. Yeah, Jesse is his name. Eisman, Eis- Eisenberg. Jesse Eisenberg. Yeah. Oh, hang on, just let me check. He some. was in the Facebook movie. He was Mark Zuckerberg, and the same things that worked for him in the Facebook movie, I think, work for him. Eisenberg, Jesse Eisenberg, work really well in this, which is he has. And it's really good casting for Fleischman, who's a doctor. He has that doctory quality, which is the high intelligence, not necessarily with with an emotional intelligence that can kind of come and go. Yeah, sometimes yeah, yeah, he totally. can, he can mm. bring it to patients, but yeah. sometimes in his own life, it's kind of yeah. lacking. And you really got the sense from his acting, which I don't think you got so well from the character in the book, which was that Fleischman could be quite and he would have been a pretty interest, a pretty annoying person to live with right yep so you got a much better sense of that it was a two-way street right. whereas in the book for me at least for the first half of the book that doesn't come until no like, i kept yeah. thinking yeah. what kind of a psycho is this woman that yeah. she's abandoned her children and yeah. left them with this guy who seems like a pretty good guy yeah so that was really wonderful and the when it started with the um, voiceover narration yeah. I, I was a bit skeptical thinking god is this going to work but it worked brilliantly and it's partly because the actress who Claire Danes no Lizzie oh, Kaplan right, the, I'm not, oh, I'm not a lover of Claire yeah. Danes um Lizzie Kaplan she's a wonderful actress she was in Masters of Sex for anyone who watched that she it's really well done and there's a scene too where she's on the windowsill in Toby's house and she's telling yeah. this thing about all the things she misses when she's in it now she's been in this 20-year marriage I miss longing and yeah. I miss excitement and da 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 and she just delivers it absolutely beautifully and so yeah I loved it I was waiting every week for an episode to drop yeah I thought I was frightened when I saw that they were making it because I thought this is really tough and I don't you know some of the things that make the book so great are all of these sort of internal monologues so like how does it how do you convey a feeling or even the surprise of what happens in the book when you start to hear things from the wife's point of view like how does that work but I thought it was executed so elegantly Mm. I thought it was really pleasing and very high risk because if you got it a bit wrong because so many people have read that book and presumably would watch the series because they've read the book it you know if you stuffed it up it would be a grotesque 
Oh. Well, not a grotesque error. It would just be a bit of a miss, you know. Yeah. But actually I thought it was a real bullseye. And um, Well, interestingly, Taffy Brodesser-Achna did the adaptation, yeah. which I, I think that's really fascinating because she, of course, more than anyone would have paid attention to the yeah. reception of the book. Yeah. So maybe she herself was able to think, you know what, well, I'm going to tweak this ever so slightly because I think yeah. this will make my point better or whatever, yeah. you know. The other thing that I thought really worked was they managed to use special effects, you know, like the insertion of his interaction with other women on social media in a really smooth and effective way. Mm. You weren't sort of super conscious of the kind of gimmicks they were using, but it really helped to build that expression of his inner life where he's been left by his wife, but he's having this sort of like prolific sex life on, you know, dating. Yeah. It took everything I liked about the book and kind of improved on it, which is that's the best you can possibly hope for in an adaptation. Big tick. I thought it was terrific. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, let's switch to uh, Crabs, Summer of Culture, part two. See you next time. Coming up soon.